Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could be with us. I'm so excited about our topic today because it's about a new digital resource, actually two digital resources, out of the Center for Eco-Literacy. I have been a fan of this organization for many years. They put out some of the best materials on environmental education and literacy that you can imagine. And these two new resources um, help us understand the nexus between food and climate change. And the first resource is an interactive guide that uses video, photography, text, and interactive experiences to help educators, students, and advocates learn how food and climate change interact and how personal choices can make a difference. And then there's a companion publication uh, called Understanding Food and Climate Change, A Systems Perspective. And it explores the links between food systems and our changing climate with an emphasis on systems thinking. And I'm really excited. We have two guests today. I'm, I'm really excited to have them join us. Karen Brown and Margot Crabtree are going to be talking to us about what you can expect and why you should get a hold of these digital resources today. Well, welcome to Go Green Radio, ladies. So glad to have you on. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you uh, on with us. I'm really looking forward to talking with you about these two new digital resources that you've recently released. First, let's talk about why you created the resources to begin with. What makes food and climate change such a compelling topic for ecological education? Well, climate change can seem terribly abstract. It's something that isn't affecting me now. It gets so caught up in political debates that the here and now importance of understanding what's happening could get lost. So what we were looking at is whether or not there was a way to personalize it to make people sit up and take notice and care. And food is an essential human need, and as such, it offers the, it offers the potential for personalizing climate change. Food production depends on natural resources that are linked to climate and food, and climate and weather. Understanding the global food system can help people comprehend how personal choices about food can impact climate change. And why ecology? Well, in very general terms, ecology studies how organisms interact with one another and their physical environment. So we're looking at how we produce and consume food and in the process how we interact with the physical environment. It makes perfect sense. And I mean, because we all eat, we all care about how our our food systems may be disrupted by climate change and, of course, how climate change is impacting the choices of food we even have. Um, now, you've got two new digital resources. Let's talk about the interactive guide first. Give us an overview of the interactive guide and um, what our listeners can expect when they check it out. Well, um, I, first of all, I want you to know that all these resources are free um, and that you can get them right now. And um, in regards to, the, to them, I, I just want to interject one thing because we had such a fortuitous event. You know, we had planned an Earth Day launch for these resources. But prior to doing that launch, we received an invitation from the president of the General Assembly of the United Nations to come and speak there. Wow. To, commem- to commemorate International Earth Day. So that's where we went. I was the one who made the presentation, and that's where we officially launched these resources. That's so um, exciting. Wow, yeah. what a great opportunity. I'll tell you, it's probably certainly the most memorable speaking um, engagement that I've had. It was uh, something called um, Harmony with Nature Program, which is a mandate of, from the President of the General Assembly. And it included people from all over the world, of course, both in the audience and some of the other speakers, um, everything from ethics and law uh, to indigenous people. And the Center for Eco-Literacy had the education track that day. So Congratulations. Was, thank you. It was quite a remarkable thing. Uh, so in, And we'll have a video of that up on our website soon for people to see that presentation. Um, in regards to the interactive guide, we cover 16 topics in that guide. Um, including there, there's an introduction and then just very basically how a climate affects the food system, how the food system affects climate change, and also promising strategies for addressing climate change. Um, you can get, uh, and, and as an interactive guide, it includes all the things you might expect, 
video, photography, interactive elements where you can touch something and something happens. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about um, that more in this hour. Um, mm-hmm. But um, we wanted to, to develop a very rich resource. Um, you can get it right now just by going to ecoliteracy.org. And we have two versions. One, you can get uh, through the Apple iBook store if you are an Apple user. And we also have uh, another one that just runs, um, it's an HTML version and it runs in a browser. So it'll run on virtually any platform. Um, in regards to audience, if I, if I can talk about that. Um, you bet. Yeah, we you know we had the intersection of some very big things we had to look at, like um, the what is a food system, um, and then climate change basics, and then also um, systems thinking. So we know that any audience we had, people would probably have different degrees of familiarity with any one of those areas. So, for example, with the interactive guide, because we've worked so much in education, we optimized it for um, middle and high school. But um, we did not, we knew, it, we didn't want it to be limited to that. So we wrote it at a reading level for general audiences. For example, if you're watching something on the Science Channel or National Geographic, that's considered a general audience uh, reading level. And because uh, we also felt that it would have usefulness for adults who might want to just have a self-guided ex- learning experience and also for advocates um, and I think uh, we, we also heard, for example, so far from UC Berkeley and from some people at Columbia who said they think it's very useful for college-level courses there. And I think, Margot, you've also discovered um, just since the launch some other audiences that we might not have been targeting but that seem to be interested. Is that right? Yeah, we've also, in working with our colleagues at Teachers College in Nutrition Education, we're finding it's being forwarded by individuals in medicine and nutrition it's an issue related to healthful living, so it's a much broader audience than we thought we were going to start off with. Well, and I noticed that um, you have a lot of VIPs and celebrities in the environmental world who've given great reviews of the guides. One of them is Marion Nestle, and mm-hmm. she's been on Go Green Radio once or twice before. And of course, she's the author of the book you know, that a lot of us love having on our shelf: "What to Eat." You know, and and uh, you know, she's one of the the premier authorities on the nexus between health, nutrition, and environmental issues. And when I had her on the show, we talked about the issue of environmental degradation as it relates to the nutrition we're even able to get from our soil these days based on the degradation of our of our soil. So you really have the backing of some of the most stellar voices and thought leaders, uh, you know, backing your guide. Now, talk to us about why interactive storytelling is an effective form of communication and why you decided to adopt that form of communication to present this information. Well, you know, it takes a team with a variety of skills to produce an interactive resource like this. Um, Speaking for myself, my skills were developed in technology, which is where I started as a designer. And my beginnings and my training were very human-centric when I started and all about understanding people, um, what some of their needs, goals, and desires are. And something you learn early on when you do that kind of work is that some people like to receive their information verbally and some people like to receive information visually, but most people prefer a combination of visual and verbal. And that's one thing that makes an interactive guide effective is that very rich combination of words and pictures and then also other what are known as perceptual attributes, um, (laughs) (laughs) meaning sound and motion and touch. So this guide includes videos um, of scientists and farmers and conservationists and researchers from around the world. We developed some original video material, um, but then we've been so fortunate and grateful to be able to curate um, and include what we think is a kind of best of a video on a variety of topics, and there have been just some very generous um, organizations and people who have uh, lent their video assets to this project. Um, we also have imagery that we use to either pique curiosity or demonstrate a principle or unpack, unpack a kind of 
what's going on here, for example, with, with how, how methane is generated. Um, we have interactives, things that you touch and kind of through your touching, they unfold for you uh, that can help enhance understanding and also activities um, to help engage students and readers in exploring relationships between food and climate change. And together, we think that combination is really effective in both ensuring content knowledge and engaging the widest possible audience. Fantastic. Now, give us some idea of what the larger frame for this is. How can we prepare young people to be engaged citizens supporting efforts to foster change? Well, so much of the news today is about about climate change focuses on gloom and doom and fear. We see polar bears falling off ice floes, and it's really sad and gloomy. But research has shown that fear is not an effective tool for motivating change. Hope is. So how can we prepare young people, and how can we instill a sense of hopefulness? We need to be honest, truthful, and shift the perception from despair to hope. So what we're trying to do is show that people are taking positive action, and we need to focus on that to promote a sense of hopefulness. Well, and Margo, that's such a great point. And when we when we want to try and foster hope, one of the ways that we can do that is by showing case studies of success. Mm-hmm. Do you envision, you know, you're you're going to have, I know it, you're going to have just scores of educators using these guides and and probably getting back to you and telling them how great they are, how useful they were in their classroom. Um, do you envision a way to share that feedback with a larger audience so that we all start to generate hope for one another? Well, we're certainly uh, hoping to. Um, uh, Marco, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Karen. Um, um, we're certainly hoping to. Um, we have had um, interest expressed, again, from a variety of audiences already, and we're just kind of looking for the best way to do that. It's very new, and uh, we've always either sought out or solicited um, case studies from what we feel are some real exemplars in education, and we're hoping to see that with this. Um, I don't know that I can tell you officially about the rollout of a program around that right now because this is so new, but we're, um, that would be very, what you just described would be very much in the tradition of what the Center for Eco-Literacy has always done. Absolutely. And that's part of why I love you guys, because <laughs> you really do, you know, keep that, keep the information fresh by showing it through the lens of schools that adopt uh, the great information that you that you produce. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much, much more with Karen and Margot from the Center for Eco-Literacy. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guests today are Karen Brown and Margot Crabtree. They're both contributors to two brand new guides that are out from the Center for Eco-Literacy. One is an interactive guide and the other is a systems thinking uh, uh publication, both on the topic of understanding the nexus between food and climate change, which is really, really fascinating. And, you know, we've done other shows on Go Green Radio that address a variety of components of that issue. But the way that these guides bring it together and use the very best of digital um, technology and opportunities to express information is just fantastic. So let's get down into some of the nitty gritty. What is a food system to begin with? And how do you convey something that complex that might also be new to an audience? Well, you know, it's actually a great opportunity um, because everybody eats. And so (laughs) therefore, food is familiar to everyone. And you're coming to all these topics with some level of knowledge and experience already because you've been eating for your entire life. And because food is familiar, it can also help personalize learning, um, including learning about climate change. So what is a food system? Um, A food system includes all the pathways and connections that produce and deliver the food that we eat. It can include farmers, processors, marketers, transportation, refrigeration, technology, government, finance, and you. Um, and for example, one way that we, like, so, so example, pretend you're in a teaching environment and you want to try to convey like this kind of complexity to students or just learn more about it for yourself. And you have a limited amount of time to do that. This is another thing that we looked at um, in developing the guide is that we, how could we deliver information and some information that even had that kind of visceral connection that food has, meaning it's something you understand and are familiar with, how could we almost kind of make you an expert quickly in some part of that? And one thing we did is we produced a very short little video about ketchup, which Mm -hmm. is such a commonplace thing. I mean, some people eat it every single day, um, but they might not know where it comes from. So in about a minute and a half, we go through things like this, you know, tomatoes that might come from California, you know, then you want to make it taste good. You might just want a little salt. Where did that come from? It might have come from an extraction operation in China, or if it's sea salt, it could have come from the Mediterranean Sea. Pepper might have come from Vietnam or southern India. Uh, Ketchup has a little sugar in it, and that could have come from Thailand or Brazil or a dozen other countries. Uh, Vinegar, which was for me kind of surprising in researching ketchup, the vinegar in ketchup is made from corn, not grapes. It's that distilled white vinegar, you know, kind of stuff you can wash windows with, almost, (laughs) right? Well, it comes from corn. It's corn is one of those things that is subsidized by the government and traded in markets all over the world. So there's both a governmental and financial connection to that. You can just go down that list of ingredients like spices from Mexico or Indonesia. And you also have to think about who produced the bottle and where that came from and how the label got made and all the processing and transportation that went into it. All of that and all the people and places and money and everything involved, all of that just for a little ketchup. That's brilliant. I love that. Great. And that can show you how the whole thing opens up. And like, wow, I've been eating this my whole life. Now I'm seeing more where it came from. Uh, Where does the the rest of my food come from? 
And what's really cool about that is you're actually introducing students and adults mm-hmm. to a concept called supply chain, which is becoming mm-hmm. more and more important um, when we talk about sustainable business operations is exactly that. Where does every part and piece and you know thing that you need to manufacture one item all the various things that go into that one item, where do they come from? And are they being, you know, sustainable in their operations as well? Very cool. Very cool concept. I love that. Now, let's talk a little bit about how climate change does affect our food system. I mean, for example, what effect does climate change have on our oceans and therefore our seafood? Well, so much of what we hear about with the impact of climate change on oceans is warmer temperatures, increased acidity, bleaching corals, rising sea levels. But the notion of food and what is going to happen with food isn't really brought into the discussion. If you get out a globe and look at a sat or look at a satellite image of Earth, it's pretty clear how much of it's covered by ocean. But what it doesn't tell you is that for roughly three billion people, fish is a primary source of protein. So if fish is affected, 3 billion people are going to be affected. And all these changes, whether it's rising sea levels, bleaching, corals, increased acidity, they're all affecting this food source. So what's going to happen, or better yet, what is happening to this food source and the people who depend on it right now? There are things like moratorium on fishing. Some species, some species are gone for their traditional grounds. So what's happening? That's fascinating. How does the guide address that, Uh, you know, especially the interactive guide? We give examples. We show examples of what will happen, what is happening with oceans. We have a great video of um, a scientist talking about the acidification with the carbon increase in the atmosphere and how this affects marine life. Yeah, we also have an interactive on lobsters. There was a kind of mystery in Long Island Sound that um, it seemed that, that there, first there was a belief that lobsters were migrating somehow to northern waters, and then they realized they weren't migrating at all. They just weren't able to mature farther south because it was too warm. Um, and you can see the difference in the lobster catch. For example, in 1998, 3.7 million pounds of lobster were harvested from Long Island Sound, and in uh, 2011, 100 42,000 pounds were, yeah, so changes like that. So we give examples. You know, there's a principle in in education that um, one of the most effective ways to learn something is to move from the concrete to the abstract. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can sometimes grab subtler and bigger um, issues by first really getting grounded in something concrete and specific. Mm -hmm. That's try to balance those things, yeah. Absolutely. Now, we have heard many times and we're starting to to experience it that climate change will bring about a tremendous increase in extreme weather events and, of course, temperature change. How does that impact our food systems and our food supply? Well, you know, I'm really kind of the operative word in some ways in climate change is that word change, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, a change in long established patterns of drought and precipitation. So if the question is, well, is it going to be hotter, drier, warmer, colder, wetter? The the answer might be yes. Um, (laughs) Somewhere in the world. And if, if, for example, out here in California, in recent years we've had things like floods and droughts and wildfires in the same year yeah uh, because some of those stabilizing effects that we used to have are um, kind of um, seem to be less effective right now um, so we um, talk about change change in those kinds of patterns what effects drought will have what flood will have we also provide again that basic background like what is a storm uh, irrespective of climate change, how does a cyclone form at sea? Like, where does weather come from kind of thing? Um, and so we've got a video for that. Um, and then with temperature change, we need to consider, I mean, it's such a, I mean, there's so there's so much potential content. Deciding what to focus on was always um, a challenge, um, which is why I'm so completely, utterly grateful. I had such a tremendous partner like Margot to work with, which is just utterly fantastic. But some of the things we look at include pollination, um, not just the effect on pollinators themselves, but also the timing of the seasons in general. You know, for a plant to flower and produce 
fruit. You need to have things like the female part of the plant and the male part developing at the same time, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And those things get out of sequence. You can have things like low production or no production or sometimes misshapen or deformed fruit or kind of a, a, a really tragic thing we saw with the pistachio crop in California, which is because these are formed by different plant parts, the shell will form, but the nut won't. And you won't know that until the very end because the way they harvest pistachios is after they're harvested, they put them in big tanks of water. And the empty shells are supposed to float to the top and the ones that have the nuts in them go to the bottom. But sometimes the whole thing goes to the top. And you will not know that if you're a farmer until you have gone through an entire season and that's what you got at the end of it. Um, Also, Margo, I think you've got... um, you had some really great stuff about um, maple syrup um, and a really strong analogy about that. And Yeah, go for it, Margo. <laughs> well, maple syrup is really interesting. It's an important agricultural crop. I generally just think of it as pouring over pancakes, but I was gonna say, it's a multi-million it dollar industry. Saturday and morning. It's been around <laughs> since colonial times. But what the USDA Forest Service Climate Change Atlas is showing is that there's a reduction in suitability of habitat for sugar maple trees that is going to be happening, it's happening now and will happen by 2100. So you have to ask yourself what's going to happen to the people who depend on maple sugar for their livelihood. Wow. And what's going to happen to the rest of us on Saturday morning? When we <laughs> well, it's true, but we hear so much about jobs that are lost because if we're going to try to address fossil fuels and their impact on global warming, but it also appears that jobs are going to be lost if we don't do something. Well, and of course, the same will be true, you know, as we hear about, you know, the collapse of so many bee colonies and the pollinators. I mean, there are a lot of crops that won't be able to be grown and harvested and, you know, that that that's a result of lack of pollinators. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Karen and Margo. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. Our guests today are Karen Brown and Margot Crabtree from the Center uh, for Eco-Literacy. And we're talking about their new digital resources called Understanding Food and Climate Change. They have an interactive guide that has a whole lot of rich media content. And there's a companion publication, which is a systems perspective to understanding food and climate change. And actually, I want to talk about that systems thinking. Not all of our listeners will know what that means. And I am 
in that category. So talk to us about what systems thinking means and help us understand why that will help us understand food and climate change and what may be, you know, seemingly unrelated connections. Well, actually, that was part of the fun of, of producing this and challenging Karen to say, okay, I want to put rice, I want to show rice patties connected to the Arctic. <laughs> how are they possibly connected? And if you look, if you look at the Arctic region section of the guide, you'll see Karen's placed a bowl of rice superimposed over the Arctic image. And what's it got to do with the Arctic? Well, thinking in terms of systems can help make sense of these seemingly unrelated food and climate connections. Rising sea levels means saltwater intrusion into irrigation systems in low-lying regions like the Mekong Delta in Vietnam. When salt gets in the soil or water, it can kill rice plants, so rice farmers are already feeling the effects, and so are consumers who eat the rice. That's unbelievable. And, and, and are there other examples of you know some of these connections that at first we might think, how does that food and that component of climate uh, connect? Are there some other examples that you can give us? Oh, gosh. There are so many. <laughs> Probably so. That, that's our homework, right? Get on, you know, uh, get on the website and, and find that out ourselves. Now, we've talked about how climate change can affect our food systems, but let's flip that. How does our food system affect climate change? For instance, you know, what's the role of food waste as an example? You know, food waste is such a huge topic. We could have done a whole guide just on that, I think. Um, but I, I will say also when we were at the United Nations, there was an opening ceremony um, led by the, the president of the General Assembly. And it was one of the first things he mentioned uh, because about a third of the food that we grow all around the world is never eaten. Mm. So it's it's pretty dramatic, both in terms of equity, of people getting enough food to eat, because we have a lot of people who don't have enough. And then again, what happens to that waste? So, so like, here's another example of how food can kind of personalize an understanding of climate change. For example, we have a section on plate waste and portion size. And we talk about the rather staggering way that portion size has increased, particularly in the West in the last 30 years, where you're, you see things like, um, you know, a muffin that used to be 200 calories is now 500 calories, that kind of thing. Or a little chocolate chip cookie that used to be 55 calories is now 275 calories, that kind of stuff. So, and, and here's the thing, there's only two places those calories can go. They either go into our bodies, which is bad for our personal health, or they go into the waste stream, mm -hmm. which is bad for the health of the environment. So, yeah. so it, it is. And, you know, we talk about this on Go Green Radio. We talk about methane. Um, when organic material ends up in a landfill, um, you know, it doesn't just decompose and then somehow return the nutrients to the soil. That's not how landfills work. You know, they have um, a lot of alternative daily cover. They have, you know, leachate barriers. So, that is truly wasted material. That organic, you know, the nutrients that are left in that organic waste will never get back into our soil. And instead, what you get is a byproduct of methane, which, of course, is 21 times more potent than CO2 emissions um, when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, it's, it's a terrible problem that we really must address in the 21st century uh, of food waste. Now, what about the impact of food systems infrastructure on climate change? Talk to us about that issue, because I think that's really fascinating. Well, this was really interesting. I started. I didn't really know that much about the food system infrastructure, and I started digging into it. One of the first things that caught my eye was the cold chain, and it never occurred to me. I never really thought about having to keep food at a constant temperature, an optimal temperature from the time it leaves the field until the time it gets to your home. And this is the cold chain. And transportation, moving food was obvious, but the cold chain was something that was really new to me. Well, it turns out our global food system depends on maintaining food at optimal temperatures, meaning refrigeration accounts for about 40% of the total energy requirement during shipping, which is pretty amazing. Well, and it is. And, and when you think about, you know, how we 
how we manage that, it's probably not on solar energy, right? <laughs> no, I mean, when you think about it, think about global. So say you're shipping apples from the west coast of, Cal- of the United States to Asia. They're going in a shipping container, but that shipping container has to be kept at an optimal temperature. So from the time they're picked in the field until the time they arrive in the market in Asia, they're maintained at that temperature. That's a long time. It really is. And And a lot of energy. Yeah, and extrapolate that a little bit. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who have come on Go Green Radio to talk a little bit about this issue. But, I mean, how long is a system like that, particularly when it relies upon fossil fuels, sustainable? I mean, how long can we continue to to do something like that and before the, the system begins to break down? Oh, you know, I don't know if anyone knows how long. I think we saw just prior to the la- to the beginning of the recession, we saw oil at one hundred and forty seven dollars a barrel, um, which may have had a contributed contributory effect um, on, on the crash that happened. But we, what we did see was this: was that you know it can take. Someone put it to me this way: it can take centuries for an empire to really collapse. I mean, if you think about it, there's still stones in England (laughs) that were laid by the Romans, right? Mm -hmm. But an economy can collapse in a few weeks. As we saw, the thing just kind of starting to go down, right? And so how long can it go on? It probably depends more than anything else about the price and availability of that kind of cheap energy. And I don't know that anyone has a clear timeline on that, but it's an awfully precarious place to be. Mm-hmm. Now, when you guys are, are putting together a guide like this, um, I'm sure that you have many, many contributors. I mean, you've got chapters. I, I love the titles of the chapters. You've got everything from, you know, is carbon the enemy to climate justice? What's mm-hmm. fair? Talk to me about some of the people who were involved and, and what it takes to put a guide like this together, um, you know, with such a broad spectrum of, of topics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'll say this. As, as far as staff, uh, staff and consultants at the Center for Eco-Literacy, the, on the guide, the, the primary contributors were Margot um, and, and myself, I'd have to say, along with some fantastic contributions, one from the many organizations who contributed video to us, which was extremely helpful. We also had um, two partners on the outside who were great. One of them is called Monstro, who's a video producer in the Bay Area, who are very brilliant, and also Nobly um, Education Systems, who helped us put get everything on the platform. They're a really great kind of ebook developer, and they've done a lot of work with publishers like Scholastic and National Geographic, that kind of thing. On a systems perspective, a lot of that material was authored by Michael Stone, who was our um, just recently retired senior editor. And we had a couple of contributors also to the guide. One was Courtney White, who had has a absolutely wonderful article called that one that you mentioned called is carbon the enemy because it's really important um in education and elsewhere to get at misconceptions that people might have and unfortunately carbon has gotten such a bad name that some people think of it almost as being a poison whereas in fact it is you know the backbone of life so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like where is that carbon and how long is it being held there is more of the issue than that we we shouldn't have any or something like that and There's also an essay in um, Assistance Perspective by Freyaf Capra, who is a co-founder of the Center for Eco-Literacy and um, uh, wrote wrote an essay several years ago that was published on our website about the connections between food systems and climate change that I think have inspired a lot of people to taking um, a, a a systems view of that. Right. And, you know, there are so many um, wonderful resources on the website. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, when we talk about topics like climate change, sometimes it's very difficult to present it and to, um, you know, engage young people with this idea that we can still be hopeful, um, that there is something to hope for. Um, you mentioned earlier, Margo, that, that hope is the frame for this guide. 
Talk to us about what there is to be hopeful about in the face of all of these challenges. Well, actually, there's a lot, which is, was very encouraging. From everyday people like us to farmers to scientists, there are many people working hard to find strategies to respond to climate change. Sometimes I think we forget to turn to the people who are the closest to the land or the water to seek out strategies. And often what they're doing is looking to nature for solutions, whether it's using termite tunnels in Africa for water filtration or growing a fertilizer tree. The videos in our guide, some of the videos in our guide offer this view, and there's one on agroforestry and growing chocolate in Guatemala. And one of my favorites is Guardians of the Potatoes, about an incredible encounter among potato farmers from Bhutan, China, and the Andes, all trying to deal with the issue of what's happening with potatoes and climate change and having to grow them in colder and colder regions, in other words, up higher and higher in the Andes. And there's another one with oyster farmers from the Northwest and what they're doing to counteract the acidic waters that they're encountering. I love it. For young people, I I think food waste is an incredible area to be able to explore and see hope and messages compost. (laughs) Well, and there's a lot of other things to talk about on that. Actually, I want to bring that up um, when we come back from this quick commercial break that we've got to take. Don't go away, folks. We've got much more Go Green Radio and a little bit of my commentary on food waste on the other (laughs) side of this break. We'll be back after this commercial break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you all joined us. You know, just before the break, we were talking just a little bit about food waste and ways to engage young people in this this tremendous challenge we have ahead of us, that there are still so many people in the world who are hungry, and yet 30 to 40 percent, depending on which uh, organization's stats you're looking at, um, of our of the food that's produced goes to waste and uh, you know I, I feel very strongly that you know food is for people and animals not for landfills <laughs> and actually the EPA's food recovery hierarchy uh, kind of puts it in this order first we we reduce the source of food waste do what we can not to over uh, purchase or or overproduce you know when we're when we're creating our our meals and second you know, Edible food that's that's you know something that's left over goes to feeding people. Then we feed animals. Then there are industrial uses for food waste, like um, you know we can create energy out of some of them. But then then we go to compost. So you know we we need to think about the highest possible use for the food that we produce. And um, and and I think that if we can begin to learn those steps, we're going to be in good shape. Now. 
some of the resources that the Center for Eco-Literacy um, that you all have available to us, I haven't talked about in a long time on Go Green Radio. So I'd love for you to share with us some of the other resources Hello? that our listeners will find if they go to your website. I'm sure. Well, first of all, everything that I'm going to talk about is available now. Um, So starting with, of course, this interactive guide, Understanding Food and Climate Change and a Systems Perspective. You can get those right now at ecoliteracy.org. Another thing we have is uh, it's another interactive uh, piece called Starting with Soil. And this this has a lot about um, composting in it that you were talking about. it's designed for younger learners, um, but um, oh, oh and, and it was commissioned by the um, the Whole Kids Foundation, which is the educational uh-huh. arm of Whole Foods. But I want everybody to know it doesn't contain product placement or advertising or anything like that. That's a really even though it's designed for younger learners, I found a lot of adults who learned a lot using it. Um, also, big ideas linking food, culture, health, and the environment. We have a couple versions of it. The uh, slightly older version was developed uh, uh, in in alignment with um, the guidelines from uh, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And we have a newer version that we did in collaboration with National Geographic that's linked to next generation science standards. We also so have a collection of lessons called Abundant California. They're lessons on many crops, and you do not have to be from California to use them. Um, California grows about half of the fruits and vegetables um, in the entire country, so you're probably eating something from California. Um, <laughs> I should also mention um, that it hasn't been part of this program, but I would like to get it in, that uh, the interest that the Center for Eco Literacy has in food extends throughout the food served in schools also uh, through something called California Food for California Kids. It's a program for um, increasing uh, he- healthy, freshly prepared school meals made from local ingredients in California schools. And we currently have a network of about 90 school districts in California that serve over 340 million school meals a year. That is amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. So we, have a, just quick, so we have a lot of resources related to that. And if you just want to know about the center in general, you could download um, our 20th anniversary publication called Cultivating 20 Years of Eco-Literacy, which has an overview of all the programs and publications. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that, Karen. And I hope you all get out on ecoliteracy.org and check those out. You know, many of our Go Green Radio listeners are college students, and many of them are passionate about protecting Mm -hmm. the environment. But they're daunted by all the information that's out there on the subject, and a lot of it is so new to them. Do you have some tips for them to help them adopt a systems approach to educating themselves about environmental issues and public policy? Sure. I'd suggest starting with something you feel passionate about or something you've got a question about. And I think a great example of some students who did that is a video from Harvard. And it's about food waste, but it's about food waste through the lens of food or the expiration dates on food and what they mean. Guide. It's included it's in the absolutely guide. priceless video, and it makes you say, wait a minute. This is crazy. These do, mm-hmm. these dates, these pull dates, really don't mean anything. But they result in a tremendous amount of food waste. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that with college students was um, University of Massachusetts noticed that there was a lot of food waste, and they began to notice that it was related to students using food trays. So when they got rid of the food trays and had plates, it cut down on the waste. And the beauty of all this is so often the answers are just common sense, and it just starts with a simple question, what if, what, why? Right. Uh, and, and now help us understand, Margo, how is that systems thinking? What makes what you just described under that heading of systems thinking? Okay, so if you notice that there's a tremendous amount of food being dumped into the garbage in the dining hall, you start to ask questions, why? Where did the food come from? Why is the food ending up there? And you start to make connections. Too much food on the tray, too much food being offered. Is it the taste? So you start asking questions, why, 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 why? And just keep making connections. I put it in the center of a paper and just start drawing lines. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Before you know it, you're seeing all these interactions that just didn't seem obvious from the start. 
Gotcha. Karen, did you have something that you'd like to, you know, a tip that you'd like to give our college students who may feel a little bit overwhelmed by all the things they don't know, but they keep hearing snippets about maybe on Twitter or something? (laughs) Um, What would you say to our college students? Well, you know, I just like to to underscore again the example that Margot gave from the University of Massachusetts because sometimes we think these problems are intractable or that we'd have to remake all our lives and all of our systems or that they would be too expensive for to address. But this this one example from the University of Massachusetts by just getting rid of the tray and using a plate instead, they reduced their food waste by thirty percent. And it not only didn't cost a thing, they saved money because mm-hmm. they weren't having to process all that waste. So that sometimes the answer, again, by asking those why, why questions and trying to make some of the connections and draw those lines, there can be very effective responses that are absolutely within your grasp. Absolutely. We have a, just a few seconds left. Mm. What is one tip you'd give our listeners who want to align their values and their mm. actions when it comes to this nexus between food and climate change? Gee, I guess I'd just say take a look at your own diet, not because you're wrong or a bad person, but just at all, no shame, no blame at all, but just start asking some questions. You know, my sister's been a farmer for 30 years and she often says, the typical American doesn't has no idea where their next meal is coming from, meaning they just don't know where it comes from. Right. So, <laughs> could you find that out? And Margo, do you have something? Compost. one one sage word word of advice well ladies i want to thank you so much for being on go green radio and for all the work you did to put those guides together check them out folks ecoliteracy.org they're free they're there now and they are packed full of amazing content. I want to thank you for being on the radio show with us this week. And I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to Go Green Radio. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.